Welcome, adventurers, to the 13th episode of The Travel Log, a podcast in which I, Stephen Hoffert, my pronouns are he, him, and Lily Lavin, she, her, will be diving into the world of Faerun from the Dungeons & Dragons tabletop role-playing game. We will go area by area, town by town, to provide a background of canonical lore, as well as suggestions on what type of counters you can run in the area, or what type of character you could create whose background is based in the area. Today is a very special episode. We are talking with Sophia Aldulejan, a DM, fantasy writer, and founder of the Crossroads Guild. Welcome, Sophia. Hello, happy to be here. Yeah, my name is Sophia, and my pronouns are she, her. Before we get into it, it's so nice to have you on, as especially as our first guest. No, thank you. I'm happy to be here, and I'm really excited for this, and I really think that what you guys are doing is going to help out a lot of DMs, including myself. <laughs> I hope so. So yeah, as we talk about Kalmshan, there are aspects like the genie that are borrowed from Islamic mythology, and while Kalmshan is a fantasy setting, without a one-to-one real-world equivalent, and in all honesty, it is laden with tropes of Western Orientalism, as described by Edward W. Said uh, in his book, Orientalism. It attempts to collate multiple times, cultures, and people into one entirely vaguely resembling any of its parts. However, with the uprising in Kalimchan in the timeline of 5e, this blank slate in the current situation there, there's a great chance for you to run Kalimchan in a completely different way as written in the lore and as an updated way. And one way that you could do so is to make it uh, a very Arabic setting. And Sophia's here to talk with us how to do that in a manner that is respectful, honestly, to the culture that it's honoring. So, Sophia, what are your initial feelings on Kalimshan as a setting? as you've read up on it. So my feelings towards it uh, really depended on which source material I'm looking at. So if I were to look at just what's written about it in 5th edition, which is a very small blurb, I wouldn't have even guessed that it has anything Arabic aside from a couple of names. So I would have um, maybe thought that it has certain people that could be Arab maybe, but that would be about it. I wouldn't have automatically assumed that it's an Arabic-inspired setting. And it sounded, at, in 5th edition, like an interesting place, given that it has this history with genie and all that. And I do want to note that all of the jinn that are used in D&D are not really anything at all similar to the jinn that is in Islamic and Arabic culture. So I just see it as A Thousand and One Nights and Aladdin, right. not really Arabic or Islamic. I actually, I was going to ask you uh, in this moment, if that's okay, what, what aspect or role do Ifrit play in, in Islamic mythology? So a Ifrit is basically a powerful jinn. Mm. And the name Ifrit loosely means a troublemaker or trouble or someone that is um, causes difficulty. Yeah. Uh, and and Arafrit is considered to be a powerful jinn with magic, and they come up in a couple of stories, and some of them are even a little named. But that's basically it. Now, jinn overall in Islamic and Arabic uh, culture and history are mm. really a, an entirely other race of of people that coexist. We just don't see them, and the name jinn really means. The best way to translate it, it kind of means one that you don't see and, and they see you sort of thing. That's sort of the origins of the name, though it's not a direct uh, word. 
And they are basically people that are capable of good or bad. Right, right. They have their own traditions and culture. And Islam didn't just come to the humans, but Islam also came to the jinn. So there would be Muslim jinn as well. I know you said it's not a direct one for one, but jinn kind of meaning, I mean, a direct translation, but jinn kind of meaning like people who see us, but we don't see them is the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. It's it's kind of a way to describe them and how they are understood. You could say that they exist on the same place as we are, but in a different plane in a way, but the same earth. And jinn are made of, you could say, smoke and fire, right. while man is made from mud. Right. So that's kind of the correlation of how they're made in uh, Islamic and, and Arabic uh, culture and, and mm. belief. It invokes in me the idea of the fae in Irish mythology, which is they live among us, but they go to their fae world uh, through portals that we can't see. And that's why we don't notice them. And that's why they've left in the modern era because they all went back to their own fey plane which is a plane between our worlds so it's interesting that it has its very own uniqueness to it but yeah that's a, a mythology yeah uh, correlation that yeah. I'm, I'm having in my mind hearing about this it's all really cool i really like that a uh, little short history of the gin there also I don't know, um, Sophia, if you listened to our last episode. It's not out yet. <laughs> okay, well, when it comes out, we were talking about a specific jinn who kind of became the heir. And that kind of idea of someone who can see us, but you can't see them, kind of correlates with that, I think, in a really cool way, where it's like, they exist in the same plane, but you can't really mm -hmm. see them, but they can see us. I think that could make some really cool adventure hooks. Definitely. And I think jinn, as as is an Islamic belief and culture, is, is a, uh, there's amazing stories that can be used there. They can take on, we, we can see them in different forms. They can take on any form that they, that, that they wish to show us if they want to show themselves. And there's there's supposed ways to meet them and see them. Now, all of this is highly debated. It's, it's contested. It's, and it's not considered something you should be doing overall. Like that would be in Islamic culture, interacting with jinn is very much frowned upon. Right. There are, you could say, good interactions that you can do. But those are very small. And for the most part, it's become culturally taboo to even talk about them. And I say this culturally because this is kind of what it's like in the day-to-day -day culture. But is that really the, the root of it in Islamic beliefs? I don't know. <laughs> mm, that's kind of being able to meet them in different forms, as you were saying, is kind of uh, there's a variant genie powers in the Monster Manual under Jinn and Ifrit and um, the Tao and the right, Merid, right. the three kind of Jinn creatures. And they have disguised self that they can innately cast to come to you in different forms. Yeah. And that is something that's also in the 1001 Nights genie that grants wishes and the like, that they can change into any form. Although in Aladdin, he's still blue. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so beyond the genie, uh, that's just one aspect. Was there anything else in Kalimshan as you were interacting with it in the other editions that struck you as yeah. when you were looking at the setting? Uh, not just struck you, but just uh, jumped out. Yeah. So uh, within fifth edition, as I mentioned, it was mainly names and some of the naming conventions. Uh, within f uh, getting to fourth edition, mm -hmm. I do see uh, a bit more mention and a lot more detail of it. And I think that's the, just the, going to be the case the, the further you go in all of these uh, different areas. But within the fourth edition, it started to show that, okay, maybe this is a bit 
more Turkish Ottoman, maybe, but I wasn't entirely sure yet. But similarly, I didn't see anything that struck out culturally or um, in terms of history that felt like I could pick on and say, okay, I see that this is a historic event I know that I can, uh, I can pinpoint to. Um, but then getting to third edition, that's when I, I saw a lot more uh, things to look at. So within the third edition book, there's a lot more details to begin with. So that's also where uh, I get to have more things to sink into. So in the third edition book, I, I believe they had more naming, naming conventions mm -hmm. and a couple more things to read into. Sorry, not third edition, second edition. It's okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So in the second edition book, uh, it there was a lot more to to read into, but at the same time, that's also where it felt like okay, I see the problem now. <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, again, this is, this was written in a different time, in a different cultural surrounding. And so I do look at it from that way, and it is important for me to note that I've seen the improvement in the style of writing from 2nd edition to uh, even 4th edition, and then even better in 5th edition. So with that caveat, the 2nd edition write-up, just with the arts, with everything, you immediately look at that and say, okay, this is supposed to be an Arabic-inspired setting. But then, just as soon as you read the prologue, that is sort of when it just starts to go right. very downhill for me uh, <laughs> because at the beginning at the forefront you pick up this book it looks like this is mm. possibly arabic inspired uh, or let's say uh, general middle eastern inspired and then you read a portion that says before we proceed let's be clear kalimshan is not a nice place it holds many morally ill social attitudes it actively supports slavery and sexism amid a plethora of other unenlightened cultural traits. The reprehensible attitudes of Kalam Shan are recorded here to provide a fully detailed slaving state of which there are many examples in many fantasy worlds. Hopefully, those who read this material will learn to hate Kalashite slavers enough to send heroes out of their way to bring their full efforts against them. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's yep. um, a lot to unpack there. Uh, there's a, uh, yeah. Yeah, that hurt just hearing it. <laughs> yeah, and this was this was in the first yep. page, really, because you know you have the table of contents, you have pictures, and then one paragraph of a quote, and then an earlier thing, and then that's it. That's the third paragraph, right before you get into legends and tales, and. The, the points that come up here is this is a setting that from the get-go is being made this is the evil bad place immediately right yeah and even though many other places that around the world really that might have inspired other settings also actively supported slavery and sexism you know like <laughs> oh yeah we've we've come we've covered three <laughs> different places already that have slavery in them yeah that's part of the thing about having this disclaimer i always think like so much of the lore around kalimshan and like you said it's been getting better through the additions but when you're trying to plan a campaign it's hard because you just go to the you know the wiki page and you don't know what edition it comes from but there's so many other places in Faerun that are exactly like that. Exactly. Yet they don't have a disclaimer. Like, we went to one city, and the part where it says, 
they're also super down for slavery. It's just a little blurb, like, halfway through that's just, like, a footnote. And why, well, why don't they make a big stink about it in this place? But then when we go to Kalimshan, we have a whole first page about it? Yeah, there's 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 one yeah. place we covered that's, like, these people, I know they're snake people, but they're super cool. Everyone's chill with them. These are really nice snake people. Now, they do enslave and eat people, but they're super cool. And, like, it's like, why did you need them? <laughs> like, why well, you couldn't do that with Kalimshan? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Zahara also has slavery. And, yeah. you know, they, they go into... There, there is slavery, as it's the way it was discussed in Zahara, wasn't written the best way. But it didn't have this huge introduction of hate them hate all of them hate them right. <laughs> yeah also like this this little caveat of like so if you want to be saviors from a different place it's like wow that's gr- no right yeah <laughs> i know that that whole thing just just uh was awful because it yeah. kind of brings back the whole white man's burden yeah because uh, yeah because you're kind of assuming that because here's the thing callum shan uh, uh this this book in particular is in, written from the perspective of an outsider as well. Right, right. This second edition book, so it is written with that tone of white savior. These people are bad, and I'm studying them to see how good we are. And that mm-hmm. it it feels like that to me because it was it wasn't described as someone who found notes and and jumped into getting information and recorded it and but then that voice kind of does get lost where you feel like okay now it's kind of written like an article but then it goes back to that voice so there is confusion but at least the introduction of it feels this way right is it does it say who it's supposed to be is it supposed to be written by volo i think it's written by el minister el minister did notes for most of the land of intrigue and other areas when i was looking into tui uh, uh, is it el minister then it is el minister of shadowdale yeah. an author excised many a time that's that's disappointing because el minister is such a great character why you gotta why did the writers have to do el minister dirty like this yeah well and and so both both of the writers on this, on the 2E book, I looked into it. One was famous for writing a setting that was like a post-apocalyptic setting. And the other just wrote some dragon magazines. So like they're not putting their right. top people on this. And they're also just putting white people on this. So it's... I also think mm. how you brought up kind of like the, as you called it, the white man's burden or like the white savior thing. I think it's something that comes up kind of often in D&D, at least, you know, with us playing in Canada, a group of white people, a lot of the times quests involve going across the land and saving people in different regions. And I feel like that's something that comes up quite often. It's always kind of on the fringes there because of just the nature of the game. And that's... But in the nature of the game, people usually give you a quest to do yeah, it that's from true. the area. You're usually asked for help. True. Whereas this... Where this one is like call to action. Yeah. It's yeah. It's very Orientalism, or, Orientalism as written by Edward W. Said, where it's showing the differentiating factors to show the wonders yeah. of colonialism, the wonders of uh, where you live currently right. uh, by othering uh, these different places. Uh, and kind of stereotyping them so heavily. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. yeah, I can understand that still becoming a a popular trope, especially at the time that this was written, because a lot of adventures that would have been read by many many of these authors 
would have been about traveling in, in a time where the world was unknown and discovering these places. And that could be the, the subconscious voice in which they wrote this. I really don't think that any of this was, was uh, written with any intent. It was just mm-hmm. not really studied to see what is, right. what's kind of coming off. So, and, and that's kind of the, the beauty of the development we've had in, in writing as the world grew smaller is you can get other voices and you're challenged to write better and, and always uh, think of the other culture in a better way. So we are at a, at a time where this is more feasible and possible. True. It is um, a little stark sometimes when you look at the older editions lore and writing and then the newer editions lore and writing and you can like see that contrast all coupled into one article on the internet that kind of growth you were just talking about you mean on like the wiki the wikia where it kind of just takes everything and puts it together yeah yeah exactly or if you're doing heavy research and you read the book you're talking about and then you read you know the small blurbs from fifth or fourth edition and you can like kind of almost like track wizards of the coast trying to do better or dungeons and dragons i suppose yeah Yeah. to be honest the more i read the books and put aside the wiki and say the more I do this, where I read 5th edition and then I go back, the more I'm starting to wish that the wiki would make a clearer differentiation so that people can, if they want to, True. stick to 5th edition yeah. only. Because the amount of work that they've done is to be commended, and I feel like that's lost if the work that was done in 2nd edition is still going to haunt the writers of 5th edition. Yeah, I, I super agree yeah. with this, especially because I know a lot of dms and players just like do a quick google and find the wiki like to find these books we're referencing you gotta do a little digging and i think it's it should be kept that way if you want to dig through the older editions you can they're there for you to purchase yeah but i i really think that it's going to be a lot harder for the good things that happen in fifth edition to become the norm if the second and first edition and older editions aren't kind of just left to rest because all references should be made to what's current. And not only is it going to be less confusing, especially for new DMs that are easily going to be overwhelmed, yeah. but also it, it, it'll have the same uh, voice of effort of trying to improve and, and you'll, you'll see that more easily and just, just notice the good and kind of focus on what is the new things to fix rather than constantly see the older issues and think that they're still active today? Exactly. I think that's that's the issue with how small the blurb is in 5e. Right. If you're someone yeah. like me, you're like, you read about Kamshan and you just have those two paragraphs and you're like, well, that's not enough. I want to know more. Like, what's the town names? What's the... And so you want to know more than just the two blurbs. So then that's when I start cracking into the older editions to tell me what's happened because I don't get enough from the 5e currently. So that's why I think it is important for them to really, I would love for them to put in the money and put in the effort to get new writers from the cultures or just a a diverse group of writers to redo these areas and be like, the old Kalamshan is gone, Spell Plague, the Spell Plague made it, because the Spell Plague was this huge world-defining event, the Spell Plague made it yeah, completely changed it, and now here is 5e Kalamshan. Don't worry about 2e, 3e, that was gone with the Spell Plague. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, also with cleaning up the wiki, 
and just what is available and clearly delineating amongst editions so that we not fall back into these tropes. All of that aside, also, it's very frustrating when you read the wiki and it goes, there's 13 dragons in this forest, so be prepared. And it turns out that that was from one edition, first edition, and they just don't tell you. And yes. so you send your players to this place with 13 dragons and then you go to the next city, and in the next city's lore, it says, A guy here killed all 13 of those dragons and made a house out of their bones. And it's like, well, <laughs> the last article could have made a reference to that. I didn't know I was reading first edition stuff. Come on. Yeah, yeah. that's why yeah. I, I think my advice for any new, new DMs is, you know <laughs> what? As, as tempting as it is, just stick to the book. If it's not in the book, yeah. from there, make it up. Pretend it doesn't exist. Stick yeah. to the edition book. Uh, if it, <laughs> what, when you when, when you know the setting a bit more and you're a lot more comfortable as a DM and you can kind of pause and say, hey, wait a minute, something's off there. Fine, then go to the wiki. But if if you just started, yeah. the wiki is a, is, a, is, a, is a minefield. It really is. It's a minefield. Yeah, this is what we hope to do. We'll delineate. We delineate when we talk about editions. Yeah give you an idea of like this is here but everything we talk about in 2e in this podcast and if you ever read that was 200 years ago with two different world defining <laughs> events happening in between so yeah a lot has changed exactly. <laughs> oh no i was gonna say something completely off track but that was just i wish they released even just an article being like hey if you're playing in five edition here's a couple major events that happened like 10 years ago in the canon that your character should know about. Yeah. Because the we always play, and then I bring up the spell plague, and everyone's like, what's the spell plague? Right. And it's like, well, technically all your characters lived through it. So I wish there was like a, they released like a small book that was like a character primer that only took, you know, 10 minutes to read, gave you the quick little blurbs. Yeah. That's a little off topic, though. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I agree with that. What I ended up doing, because my character's, went through six, seven levels before I realized that they should know what the spell plague is and they should be able to see some effects of it. So I'm like, okay, quick fix. Spell plague happened long ago. Yeah. Like way much longer. Okay, that way I don't need to worry about it now. I yeah. think I pulled that exact thing in our <laughs> yeah. last campaign. It's because, yeah, it's just they never really reference yeah. it in many of the published books. And it's like, it just was like in your lifetime or your parents' lifetime. There was blue flame flying around, and ha the water receded from Neverwinter yeah. and Waterdeep. And in the, this forest that's near Kalimshan, half the forest turned to rock spires. It's like this is things you would remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like my three hundred yeah. year old elf wizard should know that the magic just didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, in in the second edition book is also when I started to see. Okay, so I see Arabic, a lot more Arabic names, but uh, I still don't really see anything that I feel is Arabic culture. You know, again, it's just desert and their version of jinn, but that doesn't make up Arabic culture. I don't see any of the nuances, the traditions, or any of that. But I know that there is, there's using the name uh, Basha, and there's a couple of other words like uh, Askar, which is the soldier uh, title, and they do use the Arabic word for emperor, Qaisar. So they do have these. And some of the naming conventions for the for anyone from the Kalashites does have a kind of a, an Ottoman feel to it. Because 
it, 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 when I hear those those words and the way that they say things, I'm like, okay, this feels Turkish to me, but I don't speak Turkish, so maybe I'm missing out on the roots of it. Right. But it's, I guess, they were going vague Ottoman, right. not really entirely Ottoman, not really entirely Arab, and. I can say that maybe that makes sense because they reference that uh, Kalim Shan was heavily influenced from an event and people that came over from Zahara. And so perhaps it's really a note to Zahara. And then over time, it became a bit right. more on the Ottoman side rather than pre- and post-Islamic uh, mm-hmm. Middle East. And then it just kind of took a little bit of its own weird turn, I suppose. So yeah, the the Ottoman Empire spanned from a bit of Saudi Arabia, current day Syria, and then Turkey. I'm guessing as an empire, it was quite diverse in the fact that it was such a large area that it covered. But you're saying they took a lot of the, the Turkish elements of that. Yeah. So a lot of they took some parts of Saudi Arabia, it and it and they had campaigns that sprung. Uh, into North Africa. And so it was a very large region that kept growing and expanding just depending right. on when you want to date it. But the Turkish influence is the heaviest yeah. because even when it got into Syria and Damascus, Syrians, for the most part, stayed Syrian. They just had Ottoman influence. Saudi Arabia overall was right. lots of tribes that were a lot more difficult and unruly to manage. So they remained on their own to some degree, culturally speaking. So everything is easily pinpointed and separated. Now, I'm saying Ottoman, but I don't know to what degree they might have looked at Ottoman. But it, it, it a lot of... I'll take a step back. When you, whenever you try to research Arabic military, as in historically, or weaponry or anything, you end up getting Ottoman art, you end up getting Ottoman references, just because there hasn't been enough preservation, as well as online material, uh, specifically in English, I mean, let alone, I mean, in Arabic, it's not even enough, let alone in English, that can have someone actually accurately refer to anything that is Arabic inherently on its own. So a lot of it ends up being Ottoman. But this does feel like they definitely tried to take a more Mediterranean Turkish point to it, rather than get a, a get an Arabic uh, language uh, focus like they did in Zahara. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah, that's all interesting. I didn't know that yeah. about the Ottoman Arabic sort of crossover when you Google, like with the uh, getting Ottoman art when you're trying to find Arabic weapons. Yeah, you wouldn't find much. I mean. You'll read about a couple of pieces here and there if you look long enough, but a lot of the art that you'll see is actually very Ottoman. You might see a bit on Mamalik, the Mamluk Empire, but really, probably 70% of it is is going to be Ottoman, if not Ottoman-flavored, unless you have very specific keywords to look up that pinpoint you to that culture then you're probably going right. to get Ottoman right. So I'm thinking if you were to say that 2E Kalimshan was, say, D&D's version of the Ottoman Empire with, you know, I knowledge that it was a bad representation of that. But if you were to say that that was the Ottoman Empire, but now the Ottoman, the Kalimshite Empire has been 
broken down through reintroduction of the jinn and then overthrowing of the jinn by the chosen of El Malter. How would you play like Kalmshan if you wanted to play it more like post-Ottoman Arabic setting? What what uh, mach- like what aspects would you put into it to allow that to happen? I would describe Kalimshan as a setting that vaguely took Arabic Ottoman influences but didn't really get into them. So honestly, if you just change names, right. you could give them Viking names. You could give them <laughs> you could give them anything and you would end up with the same. It's what I would really like to do with Kalimshan, which I feel is a missed opportunity, and what I would rather focus it on is this is a these are people that have withstood so much and have lived through a lot. Mm. They have yeah. the, the most unique part of Kalimshan, which I think is enough to focus on, and I wish that was what was explored and exploded in detail, was the effects of having these elemental beings just use this place to, to however they like and rule over it with their only their own interest. Like that in itself is how I describe Kalimshan, just a setting that has been influenced, right. torn apart, picked up, not just environmentally changed, but the people themselves have been changed by elemental beings. Now, how you flavor it culturally, honestly, in some way or the other, you could do whatever you want, because just because the name of the leader was Basha, it doesn't make it Ottoman or Arabic. Mm-hmm. The naming convention is not enough to reflect the society. That being said, if you want to flavor it Arabic or Ottoman, you can. And you can, you, you can do that in a, kind of a simpler way by saying, okay, uh, this is a reference to Zahara. In quite some, in, 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 within the history of Kalimshan, they reference that they have Zaharan architecture and things like that. So you can look at some Zaharan customs and see what fits from there to introduce here. So you can do that. That would be a little bit of, a, of an easy way out, especially if you don't want to do a lot of research into Arabic culture or you don't really know where to start. That being said, while Zahara does have its problems, it did, as a product of its time, try its best to represent a thousand and one nights in Arabic language. It, it, it does go into some Islamic traditions and bring them in, but really it's it's more of a, it, they, they say themselves in the introduction that they've referenced a thousand and one nights. So you can take that for daily life, for food, for um, ha- uh, the values, because right. what Zahara has that Kalimshan doesn't, it does have some Arabic values, which is the importance of generosity, the uh, the importance of treating one's guest and the details in it, because they do go into this detail. They do differentiate between people that live in the, out in the desert, uh, the nomads, the nomadic tribes, and the people in the cities. So you can take that approach. That is one possible approach among so many. What I would do personally is I would really try to think of, okay, so they're, they're from Zahara, so maybe I'll take a little bit of details that could have spilled over, but they also have this huge influence of the elemental plane. So how would that have changed their daily life? You, how do they, how do they approach the elements and their societal structure? Do they still care to, to place anyone that harkens back to uh, anyone that touches from the elemental plane like Janassi? Or are they so mad at what happened to them that there's a revolution and people have, have the split of 
Right. You know what? Your people of, of your blood have hurt us for too long. Uh, and how do they how do they come how do they come to terms with that? You're like you're talking about years uh, of clashing amongst them because after the spell plague when perhaps everyone was to some degree left equal because whoever was ruling around them left. So what does that look like? And I feel like there's so much to play with there. What th and I haven't looked at the elemental plane that much. But if there are traditions and cultural values there that can steep in here and influence even the, the, the mm. humanoids that are, you know, just the humans and the elves and the others, then that would be great too because it, it, it just creates this mix of taking from Zahara, taking from the elemental plane, and then creating something entirely unique on its own. And because I feel Kalamshan deserves to have something that just talks about being racked by for for some hundreds of years by these elemental beings. No, I, I agree. Right, yeah. I, agree. I think one, mentioning Zakara is a really good idea because it's canon way rather than like it's something within the D&D &D world that you can reference to kind of get a, a feel for the culture. But also, yeah, Kalimshan is steeped with such awesome lore when it comes to the elemental beings. It's one of the few places where a different plane of existence has left such a massive fingerprint on it and i love that idea of go look up the traditions in the city of brass which is the capital city of the elemental plane of fire and carry some of those in to the kalimshan tradition because you're right that's so such a major part of their history and it's a very unique i feel thing that kalimshan has going for it that it was touched by the um, different planes of existence the elemental planes so heavily that to lean onto that i think is really cool and interesting. Yeah, an aspect that was talked about in 2E that I thought was interesting was them saying how Kalanchites were not, they did not want anyone to use teleportation magic or planar magic right. lest they bring bring about more elementals, lest they bring on more uh, elemental reckoning. So you could, it was a ma it is a magically tinged area, but you could make it so anything like planar and anything that is like summoning fire uh, summoning uh, beings from other planes is don't do it we don't want to see that here like we've had enough of that yeah and I, I think the 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 physical and emotional wounds there would, would would change them to such a degree that can be its own strength so how have they grown to adapt because yeah. I I wouldn't want the idea of how the Kalimshan people have survived just about everything yeah, it's to to be lost in this, and maybe that is really what mm -hmm. uh, bolsters them to to keep going. Something I was gonna ask too. So there's mention of tieflings in Kalimshan and um, Janassi. So you're you're half demonic or devil presence, and you're half uh, elemental. Is there any sort of like in Nordic mythology there is the dwarves? Is there any sort of flavor of elf dwarf or any of the races present in D&D that you could bring from Zahara or from an Islamic mythology to to add to Kalimshan to make it less than just a human centric area from Islamic uh, traditions and beliefs no you have so you have you have humans you have jinn and then the only other thing you have that I can say if you were to take a fancy twist within Islamic uh, history, it is believed that humans were 
a lot larger, grander, and bigger, physically speaking, than they are today. Mm. So the humans of old used to be equivalent of giants. Mm. So if you if you want to take that twist, you could add giants here, if you want. That's cool. So, but that is really more of a flavorful twist. And then you could reference it saying that it, uh, that the giants are old men. They're not called giants here, you know, like or let's say the, the first men or something. Okay, that sounds a little bit uh, Game of Thrones, but you get my point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but I think that's cool because there's, there's a Goliath race, which are supposed to be a giant race, and they are yeah. at minimum yeah. seven feet tall in D&D. And Goliaths don't really, they're just said to be in the mountains. Uh, very, But you could have <laughs> a Kalanshan desert giant that are like, yeah, the, the first, or just give them a name like that, or uh, um, a population that were there before the djinn showed up, before the elemental showed up. Yeah. Right. And they still live in like the deserts or wherever. Yeah. Something else that could be brought up from Zahara, if I remember correctly, Zahara does not have any dragons. And the belief is that the djinn keep them away. Hmm. Now, I know Kalamshan doesn't have hmm. many dragons either, but here and there you mentioned that, oh, it's because there's that one dragon. So you can uh, have it that there's only that one dragon or there's no dragons here because of how uh, long there's always been uh, elementals here that have kept them at bay. But now that there's no elementals, do dragons start popping up? You know, if that's relevant, you could do that. I like that a lot. There's, what dragon is it? Is it brass or is it bronze that likes to live inside the sand? Mm. It's either it's either brass or bronze. And they like to, mm. they have like a burrow speed and they like to swim through deserts. Maybe, yeah, with the expulsion of the djinn, maybe um, a bunch of brass or bronze dragons are like oh free desert real estate and they've started kind of trying to pile in <laughs> yeah so there that can be brought in and played with as well in terms of the other races i think as a, as a race i think genasi ha, could be improved mm. <laughs> i really think that they could be made so much better and you know there could easily be, um, like, Genasi can be just about any race. So you could have an elven Genasi, a human Genasi, a dwarf Genasi. So that could just show yeah. whatever races might have been there before the whole elemental effect happened. And then there could have been intermingling causing Genasi of just about every single right. possible race mix. So that can be uh, a fun thing to play with. And True. the the reference of whatever elemental being was in power at that time in that location can show can affect that Genasi mix. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, it makes total sense. There was, yeah, it, it says in the lore that there was a southern forest that was destroyed by Kellum, uh, by one of the first genie rulers. So maybe there are these Genasi from that era who have like a Genasi elf or wood elf connection. That'd be cool. There's also a lot of mm-hmm. drow in Kalimshan. They've got a steep, steep history true, with yeah. the drow beneath Kalimport, and a Janassi drow would be a pretty cool mix there. A lot of different cultures at play in this one character. Definitely. Oh, and I think, you know, if you're a Janassi drow, that also adds that kind of element of, so what part of you would you find that pulls and influences the culture around you is it still say uh, that side of loth that is influencing the drow or is it say the uh, more positive um, goddess that the drow have illustrate 
Or is it going to be something entirely different in the elementals? And what can you do with the drow here that you can't do anywhere else? I would I would have that conflict and pull more on the elemental side because yeah. you know a, a drow that is a a follower of Lolf or any of the other uh, let's say dark cell they're in, yeah. you can pop that anywhere. There's I've mentioned this little tidbit of lore, but just while we're on the Janassi real quick, there's there was a I think it was in third edition. I forget his name, but there was a half-elf who was the world's greatest portal maker, and people would hire him to make um, specific portals to and from locations. And one day he just decided to make a portal to a demiplane that he made himself. And he designed the demiplane to have four regions, one for each element, fire, earth, air, and water. And then he went to the Janassi and went, hey, Janassi, as a half-elf, I always felt I had nowhere to live. So I've made you all a demiplane to live in. Why don't you go there? And the Janassi went, We didn't ask for this. We don't want this. Go away. <laughs> and now it's just this empty demiplane that this elf made without asking anyone if they wanted it. <laughs> yeah, just a little Janassi lore that I thought was hilarious. I love that. I love that. And I just want to like, just imagine... The mind behind that that decided, I'll make a plane as a gift. Yeah, oh, exactly. No one wants it. Now I'm just alone <laughs> in this plane. Yeah. Also, he's not a Janassi, and he didn't ask any Janassi for their input. So he yeah. just made a plane that he thought Janassi would like. Oh, yeah. You know what? It's so, it's just... I would have that guy show up at the end of the spell play. Yeah. Be like, hey, look, I made a place for you all. They're like, well, we've got our own place. Thank you. And maybe every few every few hundred <laughs> years, you know, planner travel is weird. He shows up again. He's like, y- you want it? It's still around, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still here. Any Janassi going to come use my plane yet? <laughs> and that could just be an encounter. Yeah, and maybe if you want to take a more comedic twist, the players run into the sky and he's like, look, I need you to help me market this plane. <laughs> Get the Janassi. Sell it to people. Get the come Janassi on. to come. They don't realize the good thing it did for them without them asking. Yes. No, and then that's when the players go and bring it up and they're like, oh, that guy again. And then, and then they realize the whole history this way. Uh, yeah, the funniest thing of. And then you find a group of Grung that are like, oh, we really need a new home. And you're like, Hmm. The funniest thing about that lore too, or not the funniest thing, but something I like about it is he, he says he did it because he feels he has nowhere to call home as a half-elf. Can't be with the humans, can't be with the elves. So instead of making his own half-elf demiplane, he decides to just impose his own feelings on an entire race of people. Yep, yep. yep. And it's like... <laughs> It's like okay, dude. So he, he he wanted. He thought maybe he'll find kinship with the Janassi without even talking <laughs> to one. You know what? Maybe he's out there still trying to find homes for other people without asking them. <laughs> Speaking of of half races, though, I think that's actually a good direction you can go with New Kalimshan. Is if they've worked through their issues with the Janassi. If there's there's some maybe some cities have worked out and like Noah, these are as much a part of Calum, these people are as much part of Kalimsham as we are, they now are accepting a lot more half-orcs and half-elves and these maybe half-races, tieflings, who are ostracized elsewhere, where there's a lot more of a community of the elves and the humans. And they're like, no, we accept everyone. We're building a new Kalimshan and we don't 
uh, we don't draw lines on on that in that case. So you could say that in Kalimport or Memnon or one of the Kalimshan cities, they actually are really bringing in the Genasi, the Tiefling, the half elves, the half orcs. Yeah, and it's one key thing to play from here in Kalimpo- Kalimshan is people don't need to be divided by races because there was already a twofold divide. You were either this elemental being in power, right, or you were something else, and that left you most likely as a slave. So that means you have. Mm-hmm. You already had that divide instilled where all the others were 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 made one because of the oppression that they went through. So would they even see it that right. way? Would they just see it as simple as elemental versus non-elemental blood? You know? So so they might not care that a tiefling was this and that. They might care that that tiefling, perhaps that tiefling specifically, fought for the uh the elementals and so was was employed by them so in that sense they might care they might care about those that profited for what they lost but it's it's it would be a great way to play out that people don't need to be their race people can be their ideals and their history instead right yeah yeah i can't get over this idea of a genasi drow i'm (laughs) my mind is stuck on this i it's just so cool i always i always try and remind myself and players that plain touched doesn't mean you're asimar or tiefling it means you are someone who's touched by a plane i mean you are a tiefling but it means that like you're not stuck to human or tiefling parents you're not stuck to human or genasi parents and i love this idea of like you have two drow parents but then you're a genasi and everyone freaked the heck out because drow are so specific with enjoying their drowness and their pantheon and their religion. And like, I think that can make such a cool character that would have so much personal conflict to reconcile. I just love this idea so much. Yeah, no, it's a very cool character concept. Definitely. Yeah. And I really think that, that just sitting down on how the elements touch this place, the elemental plane touch this place can just end up leading to uh, a huge amount of brainstorming and creating a whole culture on its own. It's like yeah. that in itself is 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 a, is pretty cool for Callum Shan, and there's a lot to do there. It's super cool. Yeah, it's very cool. So yeah, we're I think we're at the kind of back end, uh, just kind of wrapping up on the conversation. So is there any other um, tidbits of lore or, or interactions you had when you were reading through the source material that were just kind of funny, uh, a one-offs or? One very random thing that I found funny that just jumped at me when I was reading the female names of Kalashites, there was a female name, uh, Sorsura, that actually means cockroach. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, like... All the other names are nice, pleasant girl names, you know, um, yeah. you know, that was the one that I feel maybe they made it up and, it, oh, it's actually, there's even a male version, Sorsur. So, you know, there's equal, there's equality. You can, yeah, yeah. you can have two cockroach <laughs> children, but all the other names like mean a good value, such as honest, or they had their flower, flower names or, or something precious stones, but then there's. Um, Before we do go, I see we're wrapping up here, but I just had one thing that I wanted to touch on quickly um, and just um, ask your opinion about, which is so, so much of D&D is just, you know, medieval England. 
And I mean, it's good to mix it up. I don't want to send my players to medieval England mm -hmm. every single session. I want to mix it up. And but at the same time, I just wanted to ask your opinion on an entirely made up culture, but with the aesthetics of a real world culture, like an entirely made up culture in world, but with the architecture and the fashion sense of a real world kind of Arabic bent or Islamic bent or any culture like Japanese or something, but without with entirely made up traditions and everything and just what your opinion on that is. Uh, I don't have anything I can uh, reference and pinpoint. I'm still honestly trying to find material to play with and use. I'm sure there's a bunch of others, and if I do uh, find them, I'll send them your way. But one thing that I'd recommend whenever creating a, a homemade culture with just aesthetic, aesthetic is very cool and there's a lot to play with and it's definitely something great. And you can make up your own culture. But... You, I feel like the best question to ask yourself is why are you making up this culture first? Are you making up a culture to try and make an honest location that is going to have both good and bad values? Are you making up a culture that's just going to be the, the, the foreign place to explore, to, to, to go and pillage and to, you know, it, 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 it's how you're going to approach it and how your players will yeah. approach it. And no matter what, if it is just going to be this right. cool place you're making up and you're taking aesthetic and you're honestly doing your best to make it a balanced culture because every culture has good and bad. Right. No culture is inherently good or inherently evil. So as long as there's that balance, then it'll be fun and it'll be great because your players should go into a place and maybe think, oh, wow, I love this place. It's amazing. It's perfect. And then as the day goes by, realize, right. oh, I see it now. That's where it's bad. Or the other way around. They go to a place and think, oh, oh, I, I, I hate all of this. I disagree with it. <laughs> oh, but look, it, the DM humanized them. Now I have feelings. No. Right. Like, that, <laughs> like these should be kind of what you end up exploring rather than just here, go, kill, pillage, hate. So as long as that's done, it's great. If this is a home game, all the more freedom around it. If it's a public uh, game then it's good to just maybe get a little bit of of a right. of a look from someone from the culture just to make sure it's not offensive definitely uh to anyone if it's published then you definitely need a consultant for it uh because then you're you're getting it into other people's homes and tables and becoming part of that cultural dialogue but you know as long as there's good and bad then it's going to be fun and it'll be balanced and great the only last thing I'd mention uh, about creating such cultures like this is y you, as part of a session zero, uh, if, you, if your players are going to be exploring a culture that isn't their own in any way, then it's just good to mention how, how is your player going to, how is your character going to approach this uh, foreign place? And just check any biases you might accidentally right, that's... bring to the table because you're exploring a foreign place. Yeah, definitely. it's Because uh... it's not just the DM's job, it's also the player's. Definitely everyone at the table's job and bringing it up in the session zero and everything is a very good uh, idea. It would be awful to go to a setting and then have to handle, you do all the work you can, but forget to mention it to the whole table and you get there and then someone is bringing in, as you said, these cultural biases halfway through a session and it's like, oh, 
we should have talked about this. Yeah, and especially if you have a mixed table that could end up with some unnecessary animosity that right. some of the players may not even realize. They might not, they definitely may not mean it. Right. It's just, it's and, and hey, if you're not going to ex- explore how to people in D&D, then when are you going <laughs> to do it? <laughs> true, 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 yeah. true. Yeah, very true. Well, that, yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. That was a great discussion. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. I honestly really look forward to the more cities that you guys will explore because this will definitely take a huge load off of prep on my end, at least. (laughs) That's the hope. That's the hope of us, yeah. Uh, So that's it for our journey today. Remember to share your stories with those you meet on your travels. Next episode, we'll cover Memnon and uh, other areas of Kalimshan North, uh, getting into the cities. Thank you, Sophia. Is there anything you want to plug that's up and coming? Yes. So it's not up and coming. It's ongoing as we speak. I am working on a survey that targets anyone that lives within the Middle East and North African region, identifies with it, or uh, is from the region. Uh, to take the survey to understand what is gaming like, tabletop roleplay gaming like here, how do we play, what are the games that are popular, and how long do people play, and how often do they DM. So that kind of thing will help us understand what the region is like. So if you know anyone that identifies with the region, has lived in the region, or is from it, then that would, it would be really appreciated to fill in as much information as we can and to spread this to also help see how can we better support our communities in tabletop roleplay gaming. That's really cool. Perfect. And that, uh, that's available through your Twitter or a link? Where can people find that? Yeah, you can. It, it's available through my Twitter, which is Safia underscore D, S-A-F-I-A underscore D, as well as on our website, the is uh, crossroadsguild.com. Perfect. Before you go on to thanking right. me, Stephen, um, could you yep. maybe give a quick little blurb about what the Crossroads Guild is, just for the benefit of yeah. the listeners and honestly myself a little bit? Yeah, sure. So uh, the Crossroads Guild is a tabletop roleplay community that I founded within Saudi Arabia, specifically within the Eastern region. When I started playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons, I was able to find a number of fantastic nerdy people to play with, but I wanted to to find more because it always felt like, you know, I'm enjoying this, my friends are enjoying this, perhaps I'll find other people as well. And it just started out with a simple post on a small um, community application for events, and then it blew up from just a handful of people to having about 60 people that are located in my pretty small collection of towns. (laughs) I'm not from a major city, so that was surprising for me. And then as time went on, it just grew and grew. We actually started out as an all-women's Dungeons & Dragons group, but then expanded to accommodate everyone. That's that's all really cool. And yeah, getting that sense of community, that's really awesome. That's amazing. Thank you for the uh, explanation. Thank you for having me. And for bringing me on here and uh, for being able to talk both D&D and history with you guys, two of my favorite topics. That's very fun. Also, thank you, Lily, for joining us. Of course. Thank you for the amazing cover art. Yeah. And Blood and Dust for the theme music, Around the Fire. You can find them on Bandcamp. Link in the description of the episode. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and have a great long rest. <laughs>